in addition to just listening to your to you as like my friend, because I know that you have wanted to share this, yeah. you do get to share your story, but you've been very hesitant about it. And yeah. And so one of the things that you want to do is make sure that if anyone's listening to this knows you to not uh, like tag you in it or put your last name associated with it, because you do want to hold a little bit of privacy with yes. this for career yeah. reasons. So do you want to tell me a little bit more about like why, like sort of that, that balance of this need to share this feeling of wanting to share, but then wanting to reserve some space for it too. Yeah, I think that's a good point of entry. <laughs> You're right. Um, so I guess since I got my first diagnosis when two years ago, like as an adult, it occurred to me that I wouldn't really want to share with everybody who I worked with that I was going through this sort of health adventure. Obviously, it's a thing that you want to tell your immediate coworkers about because you're going to have to leave work and take time off to do um, various types of treatment. But this time especially, now that I know it's the cancer's back and it's metastasized, I'm, I was thinking a lot more about how it would impact my job search, first of all, mm-hmm. and then just like how how people might um, interact with me. My main concern is that anyone in the academic world, which is a relatively small place, especially in neuroscience, the longer you stay in it, if someone knew that I had metastatic cancer, I feel like it could bias hiring decisions. Like that's just the fundamental thing. Yeah. And while that's totally illegal, um, and for all we know, I could be better in a year and be stable on whatever drugs I'm taking. And I could live another 10, 15 years. I could live until I'm 95. Who knows? But yeah. there's this real, very real risk that I could be getting sicker in the near future. Yeah. So that's the main thing. Um, and I also want to be able to choose who I tell in the professional world as I go along. Mm-hmm. I've been very careful about that over the summer. Like for now at work, only the people I work closest with know I haven't even really told my close, my close circle of colleagues or some of my other mentors yet. I was just talking to a friend today about how I would start sharing with some of my other mentors because I feel like I need their help. Um, but what's been important to me personally is to figure out how I feel about it first. For sure. And, and to just have the privacy during that experience. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure, like, this is a probably a fairly, like, common but untalked about experience for people, for young people who have cancer, because, like, for you, it's about a, you know, the career trajectory in academia is about, you know, getting an actual, a different job, but for other people, there's promotions, and, you know, I'm sure other people feel that they want to keep this silent, because, you know, there is a bias. I remember even I was applying for a job when I was like, I don't know, two months pregnant or something like that. And I was like, I, 
or I was like three months pregnant. So I was like not showing, but you know, I was just like, definitely want to make sure that that wasn't known because I'm like, for sure, if someone's sitting there interviewing, there's two equal candidates, why would you take the person who's pregnant right now? You know? Exactly. Like take the person who's not. So (laughs) yeah. So it's exactly that. Yeah. Well, and in the perspective of being hired to start a lab, I mean, they're investing a lot of money in you. So yeah, I've really, you know, I started struggling with that the minute I got my diagnosis. I remember talking to a friend um, that afternoon while I was sitting out in the, the meditation garden where I go to like process my experience. And a, a first thought that I had was I didn't want to feel like I was being sneaky or disingenuous and, and not sharing information. But at the same time, like I've worked so hard for this. I don't want to, like, I'm not just going to bow out and say, oh, well, it's too, somebody else should get all that money. Like, I'm for a good sure. scientist. I deserve to have a lab. I know. So if I have to be a little behind the scenes about this experience, then so be it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you said, this, you know, that you might live to 95, 100, you know, because you don't know how you're going to respond to these next drugs. And I think also there's just like a really uh, big misconception or lack of understanding of where cancer research is right now. Like even I was surprised, like when you start talking about maintenance, chemotherapy, like, you know, a while mm. ago, I was... Yep really surprised I didn't know that existed. And then I was talking to my friend Nat about it, who works in cancer. She's a health economist modeling, you know, different outcomes associated with cancer prevention and all the stuff. And I told her about this and she's like, I didn't even know about this, you know? So, you know, there's a, there really? are a lot. Yeah. She was really surprised that she didn't know about <laughs> it and that it existed. So. Well, I guess I take it for granted now because I've been just so, deeply doing research and trying to understand everything. And maybe it comes up more often for, for rare cancers where patients are exploring a lot more of the newer targeted treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible. I realized I forgot to answer your second point of your question though before. Oh, we were that? talking about keeping my privacy and being um, closing the doors of communication. But what's made me really decide to open the doors and think more about talking about this partially openly with you is that the more that I share with you and Mike and the more that we have these conversations, the more I feel like it gives me resilience and gives me energy. And I realized that, you know, there, there may actually be other people who are going through, if it's not this unique combination of rare cancers that I have, that there are other people out there who could, be in a similar situation and who might reach out to me and give me support because I haven't found anybody like that yet. Um, really. That just brought tears to my eyes because I feel it like, honestly, I, I believe in the, in the the art of sharing (laughs) to my core. And I know from experience how much value there is in that and how people get connected through their stories. And mm-hmm. so to hear, like just to hear you say that you've gained some resilience and that you think that there might be someone else out there, like it just, it just like makes my heart melt. <laughs> it really does. It's the truth. <laughs> it's the absolute truth. You're a big part of that. 
Mandy and the art of sharing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's talk about oversharing, but (laughs) yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But wait, so, so then we were talking about um, what, what do we know about treatment and like, what's the actual circumstances where treatments could come up. I mean, I was just talking about this with my oncologist in New York last week. Um, when he commented that it was good to see me again because I had come back after my first consultation, which was something I decided to do after getting my um, diagnosis that my cancer had metastasized. I wanted to go to a center that had more expertise in my particular subtype of cancer because right now I live in a, like a small college town in the U.S. And while there's really great doctors, and I've been so lucky to have... Um, like clinically, academically, personally excellent people taking care of me. They just don't see a lot of cases like me, if any. Um, And so when it comes to figuring out what's, well, the first thing didn't work, what's next? Second thing didn't work, what's next? They aren't in a position where they've run into a situation like that before. So... So when he saw me again and he said, it's good you came back, it's, it's been, what, like three, four months? Um, and yeah, that's the case because sometimes people will go and get the consult with a famous doctor who knows a lot and then never come back or come back after five years. Um, so much changes every month. Like they're doing yeah. clinical trials and they can learn something or a paper can come out, a, a trial could be published within three to six months. And the yeah. companies are developing drugs all the time. Like, there's so many things that you can try. I think, I, like, that even surprised me when you were, like, I was really glad when he said, you have to come back often, like, this is great. And, and, and when he said that, like, things change so quickly because my experience with, like, academia to mm-hmm. um, clin- the clinic is, has always been that there's such a, a delay. And I guess... It, it, maybe that's true for a lot of things, but cancer just has this, you know, it's on a different pedestal. And so people are trying things probably sooner than you would with like, say, antidepressants or I don't know, any other kind of like diabetes medication or something because, you know, because of the, it's, it's imminent, right? Like there's, you, we need to make changes in this profile really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that was really inspiring to hear that, yeah, and like in six months, there could be a whole different treatment that you could undergo. Mm-hmm. Well, an important distinction there is that we're not necessarily talking about getting a brand new drug from a drug company, even though I just kind of alluded to that. What is often the case is that there are drugs that have been FDA approved and that have gone through trials to reach that status in other types of cancer. Mm-hmm. So say that it's a treatment that we know is effective for melanoma, um, but it's never been tested in patients with sarcoma, they would run an additional trial with sarcoma patients to see if it's effective before saying that it's approved and recommended for sarcoma. Right. So in some cases, you can access drugs that are approved for other cancers um, without having, like, entered a trial, but in general, it's really just taking like what's available and then applying it to other, to solve other problems. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't take as long as going right. to Well, going and I guess experience. like the other thing is that like cancers 
are so different, mm-hmm. but there's, there seems to be, because they're similar enough, and there's probably no other example of a disease that has so many different profiles or different like subtypes. Um, so, you know, a drug that's approved for this one cancer can then more easily then just be a new trial and then can be approved for a second cancer. Whereas like whether, what other condition has so many different subtypes? That's a great question. I was just trying to think of examples. I don't think there is. Like, I mean, you could argue that the spectrum in psychiatric illness, there's a lot of different subtypes because we don't really have the ability to categorize, but that's another conversation. Yeah, I think cancer, cancer is a unique case because it's all about as the cells divide and the tumors grow, the cancer that you start with may even turn into a slightly different variant because new mutations in the DNA of the tumors can occur. Right. Yeah. So, and the response to treatment is all about what's, what's causing that set of cells to go haywire. What is the mutation or the set of mutations that are responsible? And so that's where you're getting sequenced uh, comes in and how that can help guide decisions down the road. Yeah. And when you say sequenced, you mean genetic, like the, the, the DNA sequence of the particular tumor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a bunch of different ways now, actually. So when I got my first diagnosis, um, they did a little bit of, I believe it was just genomic sequencing here locally at this university hospital, where they take a set of genes that they know could be playing a role in developing cancer. And then they look at the sequence of your tumor genes relative to the known correct sequence of the genes. And then if you have a mutation, it could be informative. But now there's a company that's called Foundation One or Foundation Team, Foundation Medicine, and they do like huge scale genomic sequencing and look at a much, much, much larger panel of genes um, and give you back this really detailed report about how certain mutations that you have could or could not predict response to certain drugs. And then they also recommend trials if there's trials that you may not be aware of going on where you could access a drug that's exploring that mechanism. And then the last thing that I learned about actually from my doctor at Sloan Kettering is they're doing transcriptomics and proteomics Mm. on tumors in addition to genomics. Okay. And that can play a big role too because, mm -mm, sorry, basic science. Yeah. Can you, so for all of our millions of listeners out there, can you please describe what proteonomics and transcrab transcranomics? I can I can figure out what it is, but I've never actually heard of that before. Yeah, I know, absolutely. It's um so the idea, like the dogma of the way that the cell works, just to go back to the very basics, you have DNA in your cell, and that's sort of like the recipe book for what your cell is supposed to do to function properly. If you want to create um, like a little mercenary in your cell that goes off and does its job. Okay, what's mercenary? What's mercenary? In this case, it would be a, in this case, the little like inactor mercenary would be a protein. Okay. Proteins do everything in the cells. They are the workhorses of the cell. I'm making myself vulnerable by asking you questions. (laughs) This is what I do. This is what I do for a living. I teach biology and neuroscience. So I know you do. Um, so, but you need to get from this recipe book, which is basically just like a list of ingredients 
to that real living, breathing little soldier that goes off this protein. The way that that happens is you create a copy of the recipe book of the DNA, and that is a molecule of ribonucleic acid, or RNA. And it's good to have a temporary copy because you don't ever want to work from the actual recipe book. If you're going to be making tons and tons of copies of something, you could make a mistake in it, you could damage it, and then you could lose the recipe forever. That would be problematic. Because if you do that, happen. then you have cancer. Like, that's the problem. Ah. Oh, my God. I feel like a huge light bulb just went on. <laughs> so RNA is adaptive. Imagine that. Um, so the genomic sequencing that I was referring to that I have had done in the foundation medicine stuff, that's looking at the recipe book, the sequence of ingredients in the recipe book. What can also become important in tumor cells is what the recipes are telling the tumor cells to do and how their soldiers, their proteins are being created. So up until recently, I don't really think anyone's been looking at that um, in a wide number of patients, maybe more in a research setting, but not as much in a clinical setting. Um, so the transcriptomics that I said, that's transcription, that is the verb that refers to what happens when you make a copy of the recipe book. So turning DNA into RNA, the little working copy. Um, so you could, that's just looking at RNA, mm -hmm. basically, that is expressed in the tumor. Then proteomics uh, would be looking at which proteins okay, are... Okay, wait, that. why is there RNA expressed in the tumor? Because I thought the tumor cells were just um, like highly... Um, dividing regular cells. Are, they, are we suggesting they're different from your regular cells then? Well, they're still my cells. They're still living, breathing cells. They still okay, so you just survive. need the RNA that's like the recipe for the, the, that cell to, to function. The RNA that's in the tumor cells right, as opposed okay. to in my body cells. Right, okay. Because the, yeah. the, the tumor cells still have DNA. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay, perfect. Yeah, because that's what you're sequencing with the genomic sequencing. Mm -hmm. yeah. But then you're also looking at what are, what's the RNA. In yes. Okay, I get it. And what's the protein? Like, do the proteins that result from this recipe book uh, and then the copying, the photocopying, are the proteins actually different too in a certain way? Right, yeah. Um, can I just ask one little question before we might want to move on? But um, Yeah. What about like epigenetics? So like clearly there's like epigenetic mm. stuff within like tumor suppressor um, genes and stuff like that in like the original cells, like the, the host, the, like the original cells. And yeah. then like, could there be things that are happening in the tumor cells that are different and like epigenetically um, regulated? Yeah, I bet so. But to be honest, I haven't even like read a paper or anyone had no one's commented on that to me hmm. I haven't seen any drugs come up that look at that particular type of mechanism it was so promising years ago well I mean epigenetics is is a huge field still for many reasons yeah. and maybe we should just say that epigenetics is um it's referring to like the internal structure of the DNA the way that the recipe recipe book is like bound up and and fonts and all that kind of stuff like and whether you do things differently when it's humid out 
and bake yeah. biscuits with extra. <laughs> or you know what the best, the best continuing this metaphor, the best thing would be is it's like the little notes that your grandmother put yes. in the margin of oh. the recipe book. That's perfect. To like to like specify, you know, if it's summer, like make sure you keep the butter in the fridge. <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm using that next time when I teach epigenetics. Okay. Okay. But yeah, no, no epigenetics. So, okay. So, so this has been really interesting to me. Um, I, I, and to you too, probably, because I <laughs> love this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it, like, so I guess maybe one question I have for you is like, you are so active in your cancer diagnosis and treatment and like directing the treatment and having conversation like very high level intelligent informed conversations with your medical team mm-hmm. about your cancer um like you you must be exhausted <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> that's the short answer Yes. Like you've basically uh, gotten another degree. Like you have a PhD in psychology and neuroscience, and now you have basically a PhD in like cancer, right? I, I wouldn't quite go that far, but I'm definitely like, uh, I could have a master's thesis. Okay. At least. An MRP? Whatever that means, yeah. Major research um, paper. So the okay. science discipline, <laughs> major research papers. Right. Yeah, I've done that for sure. Yeah, I think. Um, I guess what you're asking a little bit too is like how my being a scientist has sort of shaped how I interact with my treatment and whether yeah. I feel responsibility because I have the ability to understand a lot of the the data yeah. out there before I make a decision. And ultimately, you know, like your doctor makes recommendations and if they're good doctors, they, they'll probably urge you to go with one thing over another if there's more evidence supporting it or you would hope that they would but in like in my case because I've I have a rare cancer and I've also had a rare cancer in the past and I now have this like unique combination of two rare cancers there's no obvious solution and so Mm. Throughout the experience, I've been doing a lot of my own research um, or being pointed to papers by my doctors um, just because I want to make the most informed decision and because I'm capable of it. And having gone through grad school and having a PhD and now having been a postdoc for many, many years, it feels like many, many years, um, I have those skills. Like I can quickly go onto PubMed or onto Google Scholar and do a lit search and come up with 25 papers published in the past three years that are relevant to me deciding what treatment I'm going to take. And so I read them, but then that's a day of work, you know? I know, (laughs) totally. That's what I should be doing about my actual science. So yes, it adds up. It's so funny that you say this because throughout this process, we've compared um, a lot of your experiences to my pregnancy and Mm -hmm. postpartum experiences. And like, even just you saying that reminds me of, um, a time when I was within my first trimester pregnant and I was my, my thyroid hormone, um, thyroid stimulating hormone was starting to drop, which means thyroid was getting higher. Thyroid Mm -hmm. hormone was getting higher. And I was, um, my medical doctor was suggesting that I go on a thyroid drug and my naturopath was kind of like, 
I think you can hold off, but like maybe this. And then she finally got to the point where it's like, I think maybe you should take it. And so we were about to do one more test. And I was, I remember I was up at like 1 a.m. And I was under the covers. Mike and I were at my mom's house, staying Mm -hmm. where she lived. And we were like sleeping in bed under the covers, like with my iPad, reading papers on like the effects (laughs) of like thyroid on cognitive development in children, (laughs) 10 year olds, when the mom had um in neonatal or you know in inter in uterine know, like their their thyroid levels and I I got to the point and I was like I was so stressed I was like oh my god how do I make this decision I had read so much about it and I remember closing my iPad and just being like fuck it I don't fucking care and I was just like you know and it was like this was like, you know, well into my third trimester. So I had spent, you know, there's a million other things that I was researching, like, you know, about whatever. And I was just like, oh my God, at some point it felt like, you know, being, having this scientist uh, hat made it almost like worse that I could find this information, but then it was just too overwhelming to make decisions. But it sounds like you haven't experienced that. Well, I did the first time. Mm. But I learned because when I got my initial diagnosis, I think it was around the time, like, so I found out I had a tumor in my arm. I had a biopsy. I had radiation. And then I had surgery to remove the tumor. And a big thing that happened at that point is my main oncologist called me up and said, you know, after looking at the pathology, we really think that you should do chemo as a sort of preventative measure. And... I didn't think I was going to have to do chemo. That was a big blow because as anyone who's gone through the many arms of cancer treatment could attest, like chemo is by far the worst. Right. So at that point I started doing tons of research looking at like which chemo drugs are effective and, Mm. you know, if you go on chemo, how does that affect your risk of progression? Like progression, meaning that your tumors grow or you get new tumors right? and, or your chances of survival. And when you start reading those papers, when you start reading trials and you start looking at the data as a scientist, you realize that they're reporting two kinds of data, two types of variable. Mm. One, is, one is OS, which is overall survival. Yeah. And it's reported as a percentage of the total number of patients that they look at. So say they look at 500 patients and overall survival is 10%. That means that 50 people lived right. by the end of the period that they're considering. Yeah. So that quickly becomes overwhelming because you're thinking about, oh my God, there's like a 2% chance of surviving versus a 25% chance of surviving. Neither of those are particularly great. Yeah. And that's when I decided to, in some capacity, stop being a scientist about my treatment and just say, Mm -hmm. well, no, that's not right. I go back on that. I had to recognize that those statistics refer to the population that they were looking at in the paper. It's a number of people, 500 people who lived in Boston, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Miami in the period of 2012 to the period of 2016, who had a bunch of different diagnoses. That is the data on that set of people and how many of them survived. Yeah. Each of them is an individual. And ultimately in cancer right now, and we've talked about this like just earlier in this conversation, So many different things can happen in each person's tumor. You can never really judge anything based on those percentages that you read in the papers or that the doctor would give you. 
Yeah. For like for the most part, you know, I especially, know, especially in the rare cancer by rare cancer interaction that I've got going on. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, I think that's really important for a lot of people to understand actually, like no yes. matter what they're going through, like whether it's cancer or, cause I remember getting to that same point again, when I was pregnant and reading the like 30% of um, pregnancies end in miscarriages and that that mm-hmm. goes up when you're over 30 and over 35. And, and then, you know, if I also started looking at like, what are the risk factors for miscarriages, you know, smoking and whatever else and stuff. And I'm like, obesity or whatever. And I'm like, I'm not any of those. So like, like I personally didn't have a 30% chance of having a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. There were 30% of the people who had a miscarriage. And that's a really big difference because Mm -hmm. when I started looking at it, it's like, I was actually a really healthy person who got pregnant. So like, I was probably really like, like the likelihood of me succeeding in this pregnancy was pretty high, you know, Mm -hmm. as opposed to this, like, this thing that was sent at me that, you know, 30, I had a 30% chance of miscarrying. That wasn't true. And anyway, I mean, it's just like, you know, people who don't really have a background in like, even just like basic probabilities or Mm -hmm. population statistics don't understand that, that, you know, there are individual differences and, and these are based on groups, but you know, you're still an individual. And when you're the one the person who survives, it doesn't matter what the 30% or the 2% was, you know? Totally. Well, and that leads to a good point, actually, that I've been thinking about, because while I don't love reading these trials that look only at overall survival or um, progression-free status, which just means how long between when you enter the study and you grow a new tumor or your tumors get bigger, um, if you look at papers and studies where they have a lot of data about lifestyle or age mm. or um, like other potential factors like exercise right. that could influence your health and how you respond to treatments and how your cancer would be happening in your body. Then they can do regression analyses or use multivariate statistics to look at whether these factors are predicting better outcomes. Right. Um, and so this paper that I was kind of like pointed to by my Sloan Kettering oncologist was doing that, but just looking at genomic sequencing data from Mm. a set of patients who have my subtype of sarcoma uh, and then looking at specific mutations that I happen to know that I have from my foundation medicine panel. And in my case, this is the first time where I read a paper and my mutation status could be associated with a better response to the drug that I'm about to start this week. That's amazing. So I was like, you know, I try not to be attached to negative, the potential for negative outcomes. And I also try not to be attached to the potential for positive outcomes. Like, you know, it's, it's mindfulness. I know, in the, I know but you what know we can what? control, we can control. But at the same time, I feel like that's great. <laughs> totally. And I, I'm really it's, resisting going on a tangent about uh-huh. how amazing regression analysis is or <laughs> clinical trials. And I can't even believe we're Well, you need, you need both. <laughs> you, you do need both. need both. You do need both. But though, like, there's a huge shortage of regression um, analyses in a lot of 
science, right? Because a lot of a lot of medical scientists aren't familiar with regression analysis techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'm just mm-hmm. like I'm always talking about this, and I've fully convinced Mike of regression analysis. <laughs> I think, and I just I just think it's so freaking amazing, and and so to for you to hear something like that or read something like that is is pretty amazing. So. I don't know. I would love to go on a tangent and even we should probably explain what regression analysis is, but it's late. So I don't know if we should do yeah, Maybe let's, let's just snip that one in the bud. But yeah. the point is it's great. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is you need the data set in order to do the regression. And in order to yes. get the data set, you need the funding. And in order to get the funding, you need the government, but let's not go on that tangent. Right. <laughs> okay. So this has gone into a very different direction than I thought we were going to have for our first, um, not our first conversation, but like what was intended to be the introductory uh, Mm -hmm. episode for the story of Sarah. Mm -hmm. Um, What, uh, like what, what, what's like another, what's like a final point and it doesn't have to be like a one minute thing but like what's like one last thing that you would want to talk about or mention or describe uh, either about your experience or about your cancer or anything or where you're at right now um, related to all of this or not (laughs) yeah no I think that's a that's a good way to to wrap up Um, I think we were talking a little bit before about Maybe what's most important is how I'm feeling right now, not the whole history. I always, as a teacher uh, or lecturer, I have this inclination to go back to the very beginning. I know. Um, and I get made fun of a little bit for this because when I do light reviews, even for writing journal articles, I, go <laughs> I, I like to go back to the source. Um, totally. In fact, I remember when I was working on my PhD thesis, I got really proud that I like, had dug so deep in the literature that I was at the original like ground zero of the PAV law of 1927 reference. Wow. Um, I'm going to be embarrassed if it wasn't 1927, but <laughs> I get the idea. <laughs> so, so yeah, what's most important tonight is how I'm feeling and what's going on in my life right now. So I'm about to start a new treatment. And I am kind of excited about it. I think the hardest part that I've learned about having cancer in a way that's not acute, in a way that's much more chronic, is that when you, the time between the treatments, like the time when you have to make a decision, you're waiting for information and you feel like you're in limbo. So I've been there for about a month because I found out in the middle of August that the treatment I was on all summer had not worked and my tumors kept growing and I have new tumors all over the place. It's you know, generally not a great situation. So getting to go to New York and talk to my oncologist there who has a lot of experience, who could point me in a direction where I'm going to start a treatment that's, it's all pills. I guess to take pills every day instead of getting hooked up oh, to. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's I guess I didn't great. tell you that. No. Yeah. Much more convenient um, the, it's a targeted therapy as opposed to a chemotherapy. And that's another whole scientific conversation, but basically the side effect profile is probably less than you would expect for some of the more intense drugs. So I can expect to just be dealing with fatigue 
So wow, for the most part. Um, and he gave me some advice about how to take the drug, like to start slow and sort of work up really gradually and see how my body tolerates it. Hmm. Because he said that for young adult patients like myself, often they'll go straight to the highest dose um, mm-hmm. because it feels fine for a while. But then you end up pushing your body to such a limit that you crash and then your cell counts are low and you can't be on drugs for a while. And it's probably not great because then that's the kind of pharmacological situation that your tumor can get stronger, uh, you know, potentially. Right. So, so I really like that we talked about, you know, how to start doing the, the drug and how to increase it and just to really be careful and check my labs often and listen to my body. So, That's great. This sounds really exciting. Yeah. I'm looking forward to taking drugs. <laughs> That's like, great. <laughs> like I'm really, I think I'm excited to start treatment again. I'm not dreading it because sometimes getting infusions and like all this stuff that comes along with being on the infusion. It's like, you feel awful. It sucks. And I don't have to take steroids. That's a whole other story. But yeah. basically I have a recent experience being on steroids. It fucking sucked. So yeah. I've been on steroids a lot. I don't like them. I don't have to take steroids now. I know. That's so good. Yeah. So good. So that that's where I'm at. And then also something that's happened in the past month since I kind of crashed and I was really tired and then came and visited with you guys and then um, decided in a series of sort of like thought processes that I need to like taper back my work a little bit and spend more energy, not just on my treatments, my medical treatments, but also on my like wellness. Wow. For lack of a better word. So Things like I've been going to therapy since before all this started um, around the time that I found out about the metastasis. And I go to therapy every week. Love therapy. So great. Um, I start going to acupuncture. My acupuncturist is also someone who pays attention to the way my body is, but that a doctor wouldn't necessarily look at. Right. Like, did I tell you last time I went, She, we had been working on, like, the the fascia and the muscles along my spine. And she commented that my vertebra were like tighter and closer together than they had been the first time. Oh, wow. Like who else is looking out for my intervertebral space? I don't know. Huh? I know. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I should talk to you separately outside of this about like going to an osteopath because they might also look into that. <laughs> But that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So amazing. Um, So that, and then other things like just making sure every day that I I lie down on the yoga mat and like I spend some time stretching, feeling how my body is. Because one thing I realized at the very beginning is you have to pay attention to your body because you are the best judge of if you're having progression and you could catch the symptoms if something's going to be dangerous. I know. You knew that, didn't you? Yeah. And that's why I actually, like, sought treatment in the very first – or went to a doctor when I had this, like, random thing that I thought was maybe elbow pain. But that turned out to be my big cancer, you know? Yeah. So I feel like it's really hard for me because I'm usually a a kind of, like, 
work 195% of the time and then take a great vacation kind of lifestyle. But this is really a circumstance that's gotten through to me. And I, I feel like I definitely need to spend at least a few hours in the morning and then a few hours in the evening meditating, paying attention to my body, feeding myself well, talking about this experience, talking to you and Mike, um, and just generally, you know, having cancer. Yeah. But not in a bad way, it's just like... Well, in some bad ways and some good ways and some neutral ways and like the whole roller co- coaster gamut of stuff that comes with it probably, right? Yes. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. I love I love that you're focusing on those um, other things because I think they're important and ultimately I think they will contribute to the longevity of your career even though it's so hard mm-hmm. to pull back and I know you want to be productive and I know you want to do things. Mm. Mm-hmm. But, like, if you're playing the long game, you have to pull back now a little bit, right? So that's amazing. Yeah, my oncologist at Sloan Kettering, he said this both times that I saw him. He's like, remember, you're running a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. That's so, great. While the pressures in academia are certainly high, and I'd like the dealing with imposter syndrome as someone who feels like their capacity to work has been cut, like slashed and burned by over a hundred percent. I know. I know. That's probably the hardest thing that I'm dealing with right now. I know, but you know what? I really think that for most people it gets slashed and burned at some point and it's how you respond to it. Totally. Totally. Like, there's a lot of parallels. You were talking about when you were pregnant before. Yeah. There's a lot of parallels in my experience with when people have kids and then all of a sudden your hours of the day that you can work are limited. So it's been kind of like that. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, sharing this uh, introduction to Mm -hmm. you and and your story and I really look forward to sharing more of it as it um, unfolds in both a forward and a backward direction I think (laughs) (laughs) we'll uh, keep following things going forward and also post some stuff from earlier on yeah well put I would like to do that Thank you for having me, Mandy. (laughs) I have to say, you know, it's, I think that your encouragement has played a big role in me opening up about this first to my closer friends and then now in a more public way. I think it's really an important part of this. 